Welcome to Gone Native. This is Miles Burke. Visit gonenative.substack.com for more articles and podcasts like the one you're about to hear right now. The Children of La Guajira Rugged desert, crushing poverty, and the biggest open-pit coal mine in Latin America outline the ancestral home of the Yu people, one of the few indigenous groups the Spanish never conquered. As the old Land Rover raced at top speed across the shimmering open air of a salt flat, its tires spewing a massive cloud of dust behind us, slipping back and forth on the odd pebble or pool of dust, in and out of the imprints of old tire tracks, bouncing up and down on the ancient suspension, which felt as if it was about to flip over and kill us at any moment, I began to wonder if I made a mistake signing us up for this tour. My wife sat next to me, unconcerned, looking out the window at the desert landscape slipping past us at warp speed, the distant brown of the hills and mountains over the plain moving slower across our field of vision, the glittering turquoise water of the Caribbean far away to our left, bordering the vast expanse of salt-encrusted ground that our driver was hurtling us across at the edge of his machine's capabilities. The old Land Rover, showing its age vis-a-vis the carpeted interior and multiple ashtrays, which long since went out of fashion, would prove its worth time and time again over our three-day expedition into the interior of Alta Guajira, the northern arid section of the peninsula and department of La Guajira in Colombia. The Land Rover is one of just a few vehicles which the drivers who work for the various tour operators out of Rio Acha, the provincial capital and nearest city of any size, will risk taking into the deep desert on the multi-day tourist expeditions. No sabes lo berraco que son esos rangers, said a different driver after our return from La Guajira, while taking us back from Rio Acha on the edge of the desert to the tourist outpost of Palomino, located between La Guajira and the department of Magdalena, home to the city of Santa Marta and the spectacular coastal mountain range of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. It is the rain shadow created by those mountains which is responsible for the arid conditions of La Guajira. Great masses of warm, wet air off the tropical sea pile up against the western slopes of the Sierra Nevada, creating marvelous conditions for life in the mountains, but leaving a barren, waterless desert on the far side. What our driver was saying was, you have no idea how badass those rangers are. By rangers, he meant Ford rangers, which between the new Toyota Fortuner, Hilux pickup, and Land Rovers of a certain age, make up the bulk of the fleet of vehicles which traverse the sands, carrying dumbstruck tourists like us and other visitors at high speed around the various points of interest scattered across the peninsula. It was the morning of our second day in the desert, after having spent the night in the small generator-powered outpost of Cabo de la Vela, whose main drag is full of hostels and makeshift beachfront bars for wayward backpackers and traveling groups of sightseers, of which we were one. Cabo de la Vela is a top destination for kite surfing, and grungy-looking travelers often show up hanging off the backs of colectivos or motorcycles with all their gear, ready to get out and fly across the meager waves when the wind conditions are right. Earlier that morning, I'd stood out on the beach across the dusty road from the hostel where we stayed the night before, watching kite servers race and leap across the crystalline blue water, feeling the cool breeze off the sea and the warmth of the early morning sun, which in the desert can be a blessing after a long, cold night, before the day's heat starts to climb towards its midday crescendo. I tried to drink the local coffee the Wayu proprietor of the hostel offered us, but with the sun already starting to climb, the steaming hot liquid felt like a crime against nature sliding down my throat. I sucked down enough of the volcanic, watered-down, oversweetened liquid to quell the throbbing of a mild caffeine addiction, then switched to water for the rest of the day. Soon we would pile back into the aging brown Land Rover, seven of us crammed onto seats which should have been ripped out and replaced decades ago, 
The old cushions sinking deep into their frames and springs which slammed or poked you every time the car hit a bump. After three days of being thrown around inside the vehicle with too many passengers, not enough water, and air conditioning that barely worked under the harsh desert sun, I developed a grudging admiration for these old, battle-tested Land Rovers. An admiration which has since been confirmed on many occasions while traveling the often unreliable roads of South America. The trip itself was miserable, but it was astonishing to see the ease with which it was executed by our driver and others who helped us along, in a place so remote and cut off from the world, and few resources to do much of anything with, but possessed of a stark, undeniable natural beauty. The Waiyu. All around us in La Guajira, mingled with the harsh desert landscape, sometimes out in the open, sometimes hidden, but no doubt watching us at all times, were the people, homes, and community of the Waiyu the main indigenous group which have inhabited La Guajira since time immemorial. The women and children were more visible than the men, often selling bracelets and mochilas, the traditional one-strap shoulder bag of the Waiyu and other indigenous groups in Colombia like the Kogi and Wiwa peoples of the Sierra Nevada de Santa Marta. As we moved through the desert, spots of bright color would emerge from the endless brown rocks and sand, vibrant slashes of blue, red, purple, or green, and we would see a woman or girl emerge from the heat shimmer, wearing the manta, the traditional gown of Waiyu women. Each woman weaves them for herself when she comes of age, made of bright colors and flowing patterns, red woven with orange flowers, or green with blue streaks like vines, all manner of shapes and designs which hold spiritual or natural significance for the weaver. The men, by tradition, wear simple taparrabos, or loincloths, understandable given the hot, dry climate of La Guajira. But these days have switched to jeans and t-shirts, except for ritual occasions or when putting on a display for the tourists. During our three days in the desert, we met just one old man wearing a simple red loincloth under a long-sleeved shirt open to the waist, but he was the only one we saw not wearing modern clothes. Where we met the old man was more interesting. At an improvised roadblock he'd set up in front of a small wooden shack on a desert track winding along the base of some low, rocky hills. From that point, we could see for what looked like miles across the open ground in every direction. And as far as we could tell, this old man and his shack were the only thing around. Everything else in sight was a howling wasteland. The roadblock was what caught my attention, since it and others like it were the main interaction we had with any Wayu people. In Colombia, everyone knows that if you visit La Guajira, you have to be prepared for retenes, or roadblocks. But the nature of those roadblocks is not what you might think. More often than not, they're manned by children, holding thin ropes, lengths of string, or bits of cloth tied together across the road, stopping cars and demanding a ransom of cookies, crackers, wafers, or any of the other single-serving snacks that we, at our driver's insistence, loaded up the Land Rover with before leaving a crossroads truck stop outside dusty industrial Uribia, the last thing which resembles a town on the way into the desert, and the indigenous capital of the region. Any car could plow through most of these improvised roadblocks with ease, but they are more symbolic than they are meant to impede movement. Some of the roadblocks we saw were more significant, like the one manned by the old fellow in his loincloth. His was a length of heavy chain closed by a padlock stretched across the road in the one navigable spot, between two thick posts of twisted native wood, impossible to go around without a massive detour. The old man wanted money for a toll, which was the case at every one of the more durable roadblocks, where we always found adults, rather than children, minding the passage. Our driver was a large, heavy-set man with an enormous belly named Jose, who wore flip-flop sandals and drove the Land Rover with the kind of casual abandon which spoke volumes about his experience navigating the desert. 
Jose spent several minutes arguing with the old man, who refused to accept our offering of goodies and insisted on receiving cash in order to let us pass. Part of the development of the tourist industry in La Guajira, much of which is considered Yu territory, was negotiation with the local groups to allow tours like ours to pass through. At first, the Yu decided that they would create retenes along all the navigable roads in order to extract cash from the tourists to supplement their own meager income. La Guajira is a very poor region, and the little industry there is, beyond tourism, is almost all extraction-based. One of the counterintuitive things to understand about poverty is that handouts never help. Giving a little money to a poor person might help them eat for a day to solve some immediate problem or to buy a little bit of their drug of choice, alcohol or whatever it might be, to ease the rough daily passage from sleeping to waking in a life where there is little to love and less still to look forward to. But just giving them cold, hard cash doesn't help alleviate their situation. It doesn't improve their opportunities to earn consistent money or better the circumstances of everyone around them doesn't improve their community or conditions which created all that poverty in the first place. What that takes is consistent investment and hard, ongoing work around all the depressed socioeconomic conditions, like industry, education, nutrition, lifestyle, and more, to help lift a community, a city, or a region out of persistent, endemic poverty. In other words, it's the teach a man to fish, but also show him the best fishing spots approach, which seems to work the best in alleviating poverty. By giving people reduced to beggary the resources and tools they need to help themselves, along with a few affirmative action style, rather unfair, competitive advantages, by working with them to improve conditions and alleviate mitigating factors, such as encroachment by predatory extraction industries or ongoing environmental degradation, instead of just giving them money, you can help to affect real change. They might just want a quick handout today, might even need it with the kind of desperation we can only imagine, but doing real work to provide opportunities and help them better their circumstances on their own terms is the only thing which will improve conditions for the whole community in the long run. Of course, from the point of view of poverty, you need to eat today. So the simple handout looks a lot more attractive than some kind of long-term socioeconomic development goal. The old man in the loincloth blocking our way on the road wanted money now because he was living in poverty now, and nothing we could do or say would convince him otherwise. Jose, our driver, spent several minutes negotiating with the man and reminded him that the deal was to let the tourists through so they could spend their money at the various isolated hostels, eateries, and tiendas scattered across the territory. After some grumbling, he led us through for an armload of cookies and crackers and several bottles of water, a resource which is in alarmingly short supply in La Guajira and one of the main problems facing communities there. The gigantic open-cast coal mine of El Cerrojón has a lot to do with the short supply of potable water on the peninsula as well, but we'll get to that later. The most heartbreaking sight in the world is a child running up to you in a place like La Guajira and begging for water. We all know that children love tasty snacks, and candy even more so. So for one who knows you have candy to ask you for water instead is a giant red flag screaming that this child is in desperate need of basic things that most of us take for granted. At more than one return, children ran alongside the car shouting, Agua! Agua! We always gave them what water we could spare, having brought big flats of single-use water bottles, not great for the environment, I know, along for this reason. But we were a group of tourists, not a humanitarian expedition, and we had to hang on to most of what we brought, both to meet our own needs and to distribute in a pinch to other people we were sure to meet along the way. Sometimes we would pass through several retenes at once, often when driving through a grove of the tall, thin local cactus, where no other route was possible, 
and Jose would gun the engine and accelerate, an apparent signal to the children ahead that they were not about to get any treats from this car. So they would drop their strings and slink off to the side of the road, obvious disappointment plastered across their faces. The fact that these children should have been in school was not lost on us. But poverty takes many forms, and one of them is children living in places where there are just not enough schools or teachers to go around. Even kids with parents who don't care to send them to school, who might even prevent their children from going, or maybe go so far as to put the kids to work themselves, seeing children sitting with their sad, bedraggled-looking mothers, sometimes alone selling trinkets like beaded bracelets, or just begging for change on the side of the road, is a common sight in Latin America. Countries like Colombia have taken steps to eliminate as much as possible of this kind of child labor and neglect, but the problem is so widespread and complex that it still exists in many forms, sometimes right out in the plain light of day. The Indian Question In Colombia, many indigenous groups are often forced to flee their ancestral lands by narco-traffickers or illegal armed groups fighting over territory, deep in the uncontrolled wilderness of this geographically challenging and ethnically diverse country. Recently, a large group of several thousand Imbera, Zenu, and other displaced indigenous groups from the underdeveloped Pacific Department of Choco took up residence in the National Park, an enormous green space in the middle of downtown Bogota, forming a kind of ad hoc refugee camp. They were displaced from their homes by violent attacks on their communities from narcos, guerrillas, or paramilitaries, repeated murders of community leaders and activists, and environmental degradation which made it impossible to continue living their traditional way of life in the face of massive illegal logging, mining, and drug smuggling operations. For months, from late 2021 through early 2022, the National Park was like a living monument to this ongoing tragedy, sitting right in the faces of the residents of the richest city in the country, who otherwise can go about their lives without thinking about the endemic plight of indigenous and poor people in Colombia. Every time you went past the park, you could see row after row of makeshift shelters covered in black plastic, with wood or coal cooking fires belching smoke through sagging roofs, great piles of garbage everywhere, and graffiti splayed across the low walls around the park with aggressive, determined, hopeless, even optimistic slogans in Spanish and various native languages. All around the perimeter were the crowd barriers which the city had put up after trying and failing to get the Indians to leave the park. The black plastic tarps glistened with wetness from the interminable rains which have been falling on the capital and across the country non-stop since 2021. Writing this in August 2022, thanks to persistent La Nina conditions in the offshore Pacific Ocean currents. After several months, the mayor's office managed to negotiate with the indigenous to move them to another temporary refugee facility outside of Bogota. Some tried to go back to their homes and lands they were displaced from by the violence. What happened to all of them, we will never know. More than 2,000 people with some 600 children were encamped in the park, many of which were hungry and malnourished. There were three recorded births, but at least two children died from chronic respiratory conditions during the months they were camped there. Many Bogotanos gave donations of food and clothing, but there were also a number of violent confrontations between the indigenous, local citizens, and police. In one incident, a garbage truck driver was pulled out of his vehicle and beaten to death after running over and killing an Embera woman and her baby on the street. Whether he did it on purpose or not is unknown, but there's enough animosity and chaos going around that either way could be the case. The situations that indigenous people in Latin America face can be stark, but there are some hopeful signs in recent years. Many Latin countries have enshrined special protections in their laws and constitutions for the protection of indigenous groups. In Colombia, indigenous people have been granted rights to inhabit and manage national parkland, 
as well as adjacent lands which have been bought and returned to them piecemeal over time by the government. There are the Tulekuna people, who I had the chance to spend some time with in Uraba, a northwestern region of Colombia touching both the Caribbean and Pacific, with the Panama border and the uncontrolled Darien Gap sandwiched in between. During colonial times, the Tulekuna and many other indigenous groups were forced off their land, killed, enslaved, and worse, and have suffered countless, sometimes unspeakable injustices at the hands of European colonizers. Now, the Colombian government sometimes buys up former native land, which was quote-unquote settled by conquistadors and others over the last 500 years, and gives the title back to indigenous families, who divide the land among their own communities. This kind of retributive justice is taking place all over Colombia and many places throughout Latin America in the 21st century. There's no denying some of the ongoing problems many of these communities suffer from. But considering the historical aggression and modern myopia towards indigenous groups, any positive moves at all count as steps in the right direction. Coming from zero, even one is a lot. Indigenous peoples are not always helpless in the face of the violence, neglect, and injustice which has been meted out to them ever since Christopher Columbus slash Cristobal Colon first landed on the shores of Hispaniola in the Caribbean, now the island shared by Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and wrote back to Isabella, Queen of Castile and Leon, quote, They, the Arawak people of Hispaniola, would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all, unquote. Many indigenous groups, the Wayu of La Guajira among them, managed to hold off the Spanish forever through their unique, among indigenous groups, mastery of the European horse and rifle, along with the natural guerrilla warfare advantages of the rocky, inhospitable desert terrain where they lived. Few American indigenous peoples ever became so familiar with European innovations like domesticated horses and firearms, as did the Wayu, the Apache of the North American Desert Southwest, or the Comanche of Texas and the Great Plains. Today, some indigenous groups in Latin America are still forced to mount their own home guard militias in order to defend their territory, homes, and families from the attacks of illegal armed groups. There's also the Minga Indígena, an ongoing protest movement in Colombia which travels in caravans between cities, consisting of hundreds of indigenous activists and displaced people, protesting and agitating for their rights, including what they see as their natural rights, those they have been granted under the law, and the ones they seek to have granted to them in courtrooms and legislatures. Lawyers and politicians who speak for native groups or who rose up from among their ranks bring a constant stream of litigation and legislation before the national government, which forces ordinary society to deal with many of the indigenous issues head on. Colombia's constitution in particular is one of the most progressive in the world in how it grants special rights and protections to indigenous groups, but the main problem is enforcement, along with the lack of the political will to apply certain laws. Like most of the endemic issues in Colombia's developing economy, there's just not enough money, personnel, tools, and supplies to address all the country's issues of poverty, violence, and development at once. And ongoing problems like the militarized war on drugs, which I've written extensively about on this site, just serve to make the situation worse. In the TV series Yellowstone, the Broken Rock Indian character Angela Blue Thunder says to Chief Thomas Rainwater, Quote, if I could go back in time, I would tell all the Indians to sell all their weapons, hire the biggest law firm in New York, and sue the hell out of the federal government to make them comply with all the treaties they broke. Unquote. There's no undoing the historical crimes which have been committed against native peoples, but through the use of the very tools which colonialist powers put into place and used to oppress them, many indigenous groups are starting to find a new kind of justice in the modern world. 
One interesting case is that of Indian casinos in the United States. Reservation casinos operating on the fringes of state gambling laws are raking in huge amounts of profit for many tribes, funds which then get used to improve healthcare, education, infrastructure, and community development. Corruption still happens, to be sure, but the same is true of humans everywhere, in any industry whose main products are money and vice. The system isn't perfect, but it's nice to see the red man getting one over on the white man for once. Unfortunately for the YU, all the laws, rights, and contracts in the world have not protected them from one of the greatest threats to their sovereignty, livelihood, and environmental stability over the last 40 years. The gargantuan, ever-expanding, water-sucking, and toxic waste-spewing open-cast coal mine of El Cerrón, known to many who live in La Guajira as El Monstro, or The Monster. End of part one. In part two of The Children of La Guajira, we will explore the massive scale and dire impacts of El Cerrón, the giant open-pit coal mine in the region which has contaminated the air, diverted and polluted most of the available water in this parched desert, threatened and intimidated community leaders who've tried to stand up to them, and paid off corrupt politicians in order to flaunt environmental regulations and contractual promises to the YU, along with other residents of La Guajira. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, please visit gonenative.substack.com, where you can find links to all of our articles, videos, podcasts, documentaries, and more, as well as links to subscribe to this podcast via RSS or any podcast app you might use. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com slash gonenative. Find all our documentaries and videos there, as well as video versions of all of our podcasts and articles, or on social media at gonenativemedia. And won't you please subscribe, give us a like, leave us a comment, uh, let us know what you think about what we're doing here at Gone Native. Saludos! Saludos!